You might notice there's <clears throat> a large bulletin insert that can help this week. Since today is Palm Sunday, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry, if you want to follow along what's going on each day with your family, please, please do so before Easter next Sunday. And if you want some extra reading that is nothing but rich, then open to John 12 this week and read the rest of the book throughout the week. It's amazing to me how God uses his word and has written it in such a way that we have all this insight into what Jesus did, what he taught, and what he prayed for the last week of his life especially. It is very, very special. We are in Mark chapter 8, the triumphal entry in Mark's gospel doesn't happen until chapter 11. We're not quite there. But there's some things going on in Mark 8 that directly connect with what's about to happen the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. Last week we left off with Peter taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. And then Jesus saying to Peter in chapter 8, verse 33, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Once again, we saw how Jesus' own disciples were so clueless about who Jesus really was and what his mission would entail. These men were like most of the people of Israel who were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them from Roman oppression instead of from slavery to their own sinful natures. They wanted what they thought the Messiah would do for them when he came. In verses 31 and 32 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus launched into a teaching session that literally both appalled and shocked the disciples. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, let them know, yes, I am the king, but I'm not like the king that you were expecting. Peter had just correctly declared who Jesus was. But then Jesus let them know in the teaching session what being the Messiah really entailed. And that's in verse 31 and 32. And that's very simply summed up like this here in this text. Before the Messiah would come in triumph to put everything right, Jesus told his men first that he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed, and he must be resurrected. In other words, Jesus teaches his apostles that he has to die. And it is absolutely necessary, Jesus is saying, that I suffer am rejected, die, and am resurrected. And Peter was furious. Absolutely furious. When he heard this information spelled out, and our text says it was spelled out plainly. Peter could not swallow the fact that intending to suffer and die had always been Jesus' plan. 
and his purpose. That's not what he followed Jesus for. It's not what he expected at all. And that's why Peter took Jesus aside. I still can't picture that. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And then Jesus sternly rebuked Peter and the rest of the disciples as well because we all know that Peter was the spokesman. And he said that in verse 33, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The strategy of Satan, we see here, was being voiced by Peter. What a change from his declaration of verse 29. And as always, Jesus nailed the basic underlying problem of Peter and the disciples and you and I. We do not have our minds on the things of God. We are mainly concerned with our own stuff. If you are able, would you please stand? I'm going to read verses 31 through 33 of Mark 8. And don't get lost because then I'm going to go to Mark 9 and read verse 31 there. And then I'm going to go to verse 32 of Mark 10. So we're going to read a couple of verses from Mark 8, 9, and 10. And I want you to see if you notice how close they are to one another. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And he... Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Mark nine thirty one. For he was teaching his disciples, saying then, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. Let's go into 32 there. But they did not understand the saying. And they were afraid to ask. Chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. See when that was? Right before the last week. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. If there's any way feeling about better about yourself because of your own failing sin and general stupidness, Peter sure helps in that regard. And yet, who did Jesus say would be the rock of the church? 
the rock who stands on the rock. There is tremendous hope in seeing this man's life on complete display, vulnerable to all of us. Look what he did in him. He had to learn these lessons the hard way. Sound familiar? Most of us do. Peter and the disciples did not understand why Jesus must die at all. Much less that it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die. Now, most of us probably grasp the basic tenets of Jesus' atoning death on the cross. We know a lot of the doctrine about substitutionary atonement, what must happen, what the Old Testament sacrifices portrayed visibly. But today, I'd like to come at this from three different levels. Hopeful that our love of Christ would grow and deepen as we better understand some of the implications for us at each of these levels. First level is the personal level. Why is it personally important for us to understand why Jesus had to die? We hear so much that Jesus loves us that most of us tend to think that, yeah, we completely understand what that means. So let's just go on to something else. And let's uh, just say, yeah, Jesus died for me, and I'm so grateful for that, and I'll sing about it, and I'll pray it. But as far as really letting it hit us in our hearts, sometimes we just aren't willing to. And then we hear what is really required of us if we're truly identified with him. By the way, that's in the next paragraph in Mark 8. We'll get there. I'm not sure when. Next week's Easter. But when we hear what's really required of us, we tend to balk at what Jesus says. And that's what the last chapter in this, I mean the last paragraph in this chapter is all about. Well, what we need to understand much better in order to grasp Jesus' call for discipleship, which is to each and every one of us that claim him, was why it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die in the first place in order to pay for our sins. And the better that we understand that, the more we'll be motivated and freed up to be fiercely loyal to him. And a call to discipleship won't be seen as a duty. It won't be seen as something to check off. It'll be seen as, well, yeah, In other words, the more we'll serve him and love him, but we'll serve him and and love him in the safety and security of his love. Peter went very quickly from declaring that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed king, the Messiah, to rebuking Jesus and telling when rebuking Jesus for Jesus telling them that he must suffer and die. But what else did Peter then do very soon?
Peter went on to deny that he even knew Jesus when Jesus had actually predicted that that's what he would do. There's a lot of denials going on there after Jesus was arrested. Well, why? Peter's declaration of loyalty and that he'd die for Jesus will be shown to be an empty promise very shortly here, won't it? The reason for his failure is the same reason that we also so often turn our backs on Christ. Peter did not yet understand how soon, how Jesus' soon-to-be suffering and death must be necessary. He didn't understand how Jesus could gain victory by dying. He didn't understand yet how much he had to have an atoning sacrifice for himself. Peter did not yet understand how the costly purchase of his own life by the blood of God's own Son would completely satisfy the eternal debt that he owed to God for being a rebellious sinner. As yet, Peter didn't understand this divine transaction at all. Not really. He had no idea that his own sin was the reason that Jesus must die. And yet, after he had denied Christ, when the news came that he had rose, who took off and ran to the tomb? He didn't get there first. John was a little speedier. But Peter took off. You see that? That's a reflection of what had happened in his heart already. He was fiercely loyal to the Lord. But he found out he couldn't be fiercely loyal to the Lord in his own strength without really understanding what was getting ready to happen. So God in the person of Christ, dealt with Peter. How, do you, how would you describe how Jesus dealt with Peter? Do you realize that's how he deals with you? Patiently, gently, and yet forthrightly. So God's own son, the second person of the Trinity, willingly came to earth for the very purpose of first living the perfect life demanded of us by our holy, righteous, and don't forget creator, so that he could be second, the only perfect and acceptable sacrifice in our place and take the penalty for our sin, death upon himself, thus literally purchasing us for life everlasting. Matt Chandler has said in a series we're watching that Jesus knew what he was buying. Wasn't no buyer surprise. Apply that to yourself. He know who he knows who he purchased. And yet he did. He decided to. 
So why did God do this? Do this thing of our sin went upon Christ and his righteousness clothed us so that we could stand before God Almighty completely forgiven. Our personal debt paid in full by Christ's sacrifice is blood. Why did, why did God do that? Does he need us? Is there some lack, some need in God himself that explains why he needed to do this for us? I know this insults a lot of people, but no, he did not need you at all for anything. He does not need us in any way, shape, or form. He decided to love us even though he doesn't need us. He condescended to us in sending his son to suffer and die for us just because he decided to place his love on us, not because there is anything in us at all or about us at all that merits his love. This is totally out of his perfect love and not at all because that we deserve any of it. Because we don't deserve him and his love. In fact, we don't deserve anything from our Creator, except His condemnation and wrath. Because we have rebellious, sinful hearts, every single one of us. Well, let's see this kind of love that God displays in contrast to the only kind of love that we usually experience. And we could call that false human love. It operates on the idea of using somebody else to fulfill our own happiness. What do we call that? That's called conditional love. There's conditions attached. You give your love to somebody only as long as the person is affirming you and meeting your needs. That just happens to be the number one issue in every marriage that has ever been on the face of the earth for all time. P.S. It's also the bottom line for every relationship that you have or have ever had on this earth. And it's not really vulnerable, this kind of love, because you hold back so that you can cut your losses if necessary. Brutally honest, that's the truth. With true love, Your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of another person. Because your greatest joy is that person's joy. That's called unconditional love. In other words, you give it regardless of whether your loved one is meeting your needs or not. And this love is vulnerable because you spend everything. You hold nothing back. You give it all the way. Now, every one of us knows the difference between these two kinds of love. And every one of us, unless you're a a pathological narcissist, wants to be able to receive and give 
this unconditional kind of love. You're wired that way. You want to receive it, and you sure wish you could give it. The problem is that even though we want this kind of true love, we find out that we can't give it on a consistent basis. Sometimes, maybe, to some degree, but not consistently, and not thoroughly, and not completely. So we all realize that there's a degree of fakeness in our relationships. Because we want to be loved so badly that we look for people whose love to us would affirm us in this way or that way. In other words, we tend to invest our love only where we know we'll get a good return. And this is obviously is, is more of a conditional love simply because we're not loving the person simply for himself or herself. We're loving the person partly for the love that we're getting. So what do we really need? You know where this is going. What do we really need? Someone to love us who doesn't need us at all. What? We need someone to love us who doesn't really need us. So they're loving us just because they want to. Just because they want our best. Someone who loves us just for our sake. Someone who loves us unconditionally, joyfully, vulnerably. And if we receive that kind of love... Would that so assure us of our value? So fill us up that maybe we could start to give love like that more to other people too? Yeah, that's the picture. Who can give love with no needs attached? There's only one answer to that question. Jesus. And in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have been knowing and loving one another perfectly for all eternity. That's the picture. And within himself, God has forever had all the love, all the fulfillment, all the joy that he could possibly want. He doesn't need us. He has all the love within himself that the whole human race lacks. And the only way we're going to get any more is from him. We have the need to be people pleasers. God doesn't have any of that particular need. He doesn't make deals with us. He doesn't give you something you want so that you'll fall down before him and sing better in church. There's no bargaining going on here. The security that we can have in Jesus' love enables us to need less from everybody else 
spouse, friends, family, work, relationships, whoever. Because of the security that we have in Jesus' love. And that allows us, counterintuitively almost, to be able to love more the right way. Because we're not doing it to get something back. Or to get them to do what we want them to do. Or hear the acclaim. Y'all see how that works? So on a personal level, the, the need that each of us has to be loved can only be completely filled by Jesus Christ. And living in a personal relationship with Christ and experiencing his love because his, of his sacrifice for us allows that love to then flow out to other people. And the fakery and the manipulating of other people begins to diminish. Now you have the security and patience of Christ's love that enables you to start giving a truer love to other people. Do we think about this when we think about what it meant for Jesus to die for us? why it was necessary for him to die for us. It pleases him that we can know that kind of love that only comes from him. We get a peek into the Trinity itself by knowing Christ. And in return, we do have the security now to be able to love other people. Like that, at least partially. This is, we're still here. We're not going to do it perfectly ever. But the tastes are sure wonderful. And every time that we see God do that in our hearts, we're experiencing something of him that we didn't know before. But we don't need Jesus' sacrifice only personally. Hopefully, everybody's at least getting that, that we can get that first. But we need to ask another question. Why is it legally important for us to understand why Jesus had to die? You're going, boy, you're switching gears here. Just wait a second. This hits just as hard. When someone really wrongs you, a debt is established that has to be paid by somebody. Here's an example. Let's, let's start with an economic example because that's so not us third person sort of kind of that we can almost swallow it. Okay? A friend of yours accidentally breaks something valuable that you own. Say your new beautiful $150 lamp. One of two things can happen. As a result, either you can make them pay. Hey, buddy, that'll be 150 bucks. I just got that. And you're my friend, right? You'll, you'll pay me. Or you can say, I forgive you. That's okay. But in the latter case, what happens to that 150 bucks? You have to pay it yourself. Or you lose $150 worth of light in that dark room in the back corner of your house that you love more than any other room in the whole place. Either way, see what happens? 
Either your friend pays the cost for what was done, or you absorb the cost. Hang in there. There's the same idea is true for non-economic areas. If you're robbed of an opportunity or happiness or reputation or something else that you'll never get back, that creates a sense of debt. Justice has been violated. Someone owes you. Once you sense that there's a debt there, there's only two things that you can do. Again, you can try to make that person pay. How do you do that? By trying to destroy their opportunities or ruin their reputation? Or you can hope they suffer or actually see to it yourself that they suffer? That was a nice way of saying what? You're going to exact revenge on somebody here. They hurt you, you're going to get them back. Whether you play nice or not in doing it, we all know there's millions of ways to do that. And there's a problem with this option. As you're making them pay off the debt or making them suffer because of what they did to you, you're becoming just like them. You become harder, you become colder. Like them, so who wins? Evil wins. And you claim to know Christ. Oops. Well, what else can you do? You can forgive. But every person in here knows that there is nothing easy about real forgiveness. It hurts to repress the vengeful thoughts and refrain from plans of retribution. In fact, it can be pure agony. Why does it hurt so much to refrain and forgive? Because you are absorbing the cost itself. True forgiveness always entails suffering. So the debt of the wrong doesn't just go away and vanish. Either they pay or you pay. But the irony is that only if you pay that price of forgiveness, only if you absorb the debt, is there any chance of righting the wrong. What usually happens if you confront somebody with what they've done, and you're still harboring vengeance, well, we know what happens there, right? They won't listen to you. They sense that you're not seeking justice. They know you're seeking revenge. And they reject anything that you say. Then the Hatfields and the McCoy syndrome kicks in, and all you've got is a cycle of retaliation. Now, I know that anybody under 50 doesn't even know who the Hatfields and McCoys are. Just know that they're in some part of the Smoky Mountains and their families are trying to kill each other off for generations, okay, because of this. You did this to me, I do something to you, you do it back. 
How many relationships do you have where that's the modus operandi right now? Whether you're married, whether you're single, somebody at works, your neighbor. Only if you have refrained from vengeance and paid the cost of forgiveness will you have any hope of getting them to listen to you. Of seeing their own error. And even if they don't listen to you at first, what does your forgiveness do? At least it breaks the cycle so there won't be any, hopefully, more reprisals. Because your end of it's over. You're not going to shoot back, talk back, withdraw back be silent back, whatever your reprisal method is. If we know that forgiveness always entails suffering for the forgiver and that the only hope of rectifying wrongs comes by paying the cost of suffering, then it should not surprise us that when God says that the only way I can forgive the sins of the human race is to suffer. Either you will have to pay the penalty for sin, or I will. Sin always entails a penalty. Guilt can't be dealt with unless someone pays. The only way God can pardon us and not judge us is what? To go to the cross and absorb it into himself. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're the ones that are the offenders. And God has chosen in his son to absorb our debt. For all who would believe on him. Now there's even a third bigger area than personally or legally of why Jesus had to die. And you can call it a lot of things. It's kind of the bigger universal level. Why did Jesus have to die? And let's get really blunt. Why did Jesus have to die such a horrendous death? Why? What in the world made it absolutely necessary that Jesus must die like he did? Nailed to a cross. Beat up. Unclothed. Horrid. Couldn't Jesus have just jumped off a cliff for us? Or waited a natural death and said, it's for them that I finally die? No, he couldn't have. And there's at least three reasons why not. Most of us will get the first one. What does Hebrews 9.22 say? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, most of us know that verse, right? But why? Have you ever asked why? Blood in the Bible means a life given or taken before its natural end. 
That's the best definition I've ever found for that. A life given or taken before its natural end. A life given or taken is the most extreme gift or price that can be paid in this world. Now, we know that, but we don't often hear it expressed like this, do we? It is the most extreme gift or price that can be paid in this world. A life, which is blood. That's what it pictures. Now, we know that. So only by giving his life could Jesus have made the greatest possible payment for the debt of sin. Jesus' death was also a demonstration of the corruption of the systems operating in the world. What do we mean? Well, think about this. We know this. But this is a good week to remember it, right before Easter. Because this week, we see this demonstrated. What's that? A combination of the Jewish religious establishment with the Roman Empire's political authority conspired together in the most unjust verdict in the history of mankind to execute Christ. No judgment in history has been more unjust than condemning Christ to death. The only man that has ever lived a perfect life and ever will. And who was it? The authorities? Both sides of worldly authority. The religious establishment and the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at that time in history. That is absolutely incredible. So by Christ's death, it demonstrated the absolute corruptness of the systems operating in the world. Shouts it out. Well, third, there's another demonstration. Jesus' death didn't only demonstrate the injustice of the world. What else did it demonstrate? Other side of the coin is what? The character of God and his kingdom as being the exact opposite of anything close to corruptness. In contrast to the world's corruption, we see the character of God and his kingdom. And you don't think God wanted to display that and make us think about it? When all you ever hear down through history, it doesn't matter what time or where you are, is griping about the political corruption of wherever you are for whatever reason. No matter how bad or good It is, no matter how well off the people are or they aren't, we all gripe. Because we recognize that things just aren't the way they really should be. True? That's our gripe. And people that don't know God at all get that. And they have down through history. 
it's meant to display something. It's meant to show you that only God and his character and his kingdom has any justice at all, and it is complete and righteous justice. Now, that's the part that men don't want. They, they want it just for everybody else, but not me. It's okay for them to get a ticket, but when I get one, I go ballistic. It's okay for those people to get caught for whatever, but not me, you know, because I'm pretty good and it kind of outweighs it. See what we do? We all do this. So this is a demonstration of the character of God and his kingdom. And how did, how did God do this? Just think how incredible this is. What looked like an absolute total failure to the world turned out to be the ultimate and complete victory over death. Nobody expected it. Even Jesus' own men didn't expect it. So that when Jesus appeared to those guys on the road to Emmaus afterwards, and he just appears and they don't know who he really is, and he starts explaining, because these are Jews, They knew the Old Testament. He starts explaining the Old Testament scriptures and shows them how he, Christ the Messiah, was the point of the whole book and how he's here and here and here and here and here and here. What happened? Their hearts burned within them. Ours should too. But only if we know the one who has purchased us with his own blood will your heart burn. Oh, that was bad. But it's true. The desire for. Jesus won through losing. He achieved our forgiveness on the cross by literally turning the values of the world upside down on its head. He didn't fight fire with fire or raise an army. He took Peter's sword from him, the times not then. Instead of taking power, he gave it up. He let these authorities nail him to a cross because that was his purpose. He knew he had to die to pay the penalty for sin that the Father would accept as an atoning sacrifice. He knew that's the only way that we would ever be able to stand before God Almighty. When you were a little kid and you heard these, this story, and you read all the miracles, Jesus fed thousands and thousands of people, he went stop and the storm and the, whatever just stopped and I mean it was just unreal literally that's why they're called miracles they don't happen didn't you wonder when he got arrested why didn't you just go he could have done anything they were nothing in his hand And he went through it all for the purpose of accomplishing his mission for those who would come to believe in him. So what does that tell you about God 
and his kingdom. On the cross, the world's misuse and glorification of power was exposed for what it is and defeated. The spell of the world system was broken. You know, the world has many ways to make people afraid, but the worst of all is what? The threat of death. You do this or I'll do this to you or your family or your neighborhood or your friends. You guys better just listen to the authority over you, and no matter how evil and corrupt it may be. And when a government power can kill you, you are scared. And they can use that to control you. But since Jesus died and rose again, those that are united to him and in him know that they too will be in God's arms after physical death because he defeated death. And that then actually will be made into all that we were supposed to be. And we will enjoy that, not for a brief time, but for ever. Nobody else has that hope. And when death loses its sting, and remember, this is the ultimate threat to control, condemn. When death loses its sting, when death no longer has power over you because of what Jesus did on the cross, then and only then will you be living a life of love and not a life of fear. That's for each of us to hear. You have to know him. You have to know what your hope is in him. And that's why You can wake up each day no matter what is going on. And it's dark and you're scared and you're hurt. Or you know everybody seems to be hurting around you. Whatever. Your dreams are shattered. Whatever may happen. Just think about history itself. And what can get you up and going is knowing that God has called you to wake up breathing. And that because of what he did and what he went through, you're in him. You're secure. You're safe. No matter, nothing could touch you. That will last. And Jesus is telling us in these passages, he's showing his men and they will not forget it after they see him risen from the dead. Next week is glorious. He's king. We serve a king. The king decided to purchase you to be his own child. And you're going, why? There's no good reason other than he wanted you to know his love. Him. And be blessed forever and ever. Amen. What else can we say? Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your word. Just seeing how many times Jesus had to tell his own disciples plainly, directly, that they were now on the way to Jerusalem. His face was set like flint to accomplish his mission. And we praise your name that he did. We have no hope without him. Being in him, knowing him because... 
in him and through him, we have a place forever and ever to know you, how great you are, the unfathomableness of your love, your character, your faithfulness, your patience. You give us glimpses and tastes of this in this life. You prove yourself faithful, but so many times we try to define what that means. And Lord, we confess that that is just wrong. You are faithful to us in ways that we can't even see, in ways that you know will make us into what you have promised to make us more and more like your son. And Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith to be able to trust you as king and creator with ourselves, with our loved ones, with the people that we care about, the issues that we care about. But we pray that we could see all those things through the grid of knowing you, belonging to you as adopted children, children of the king. Thank you for this glorious picture of Christ that you give us in the Gospels. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The word in the Old Testament that displays, encompasses all this more than any other, I think is translated in the ESV as steadfast love. In other versions, it's loving kindness. But it's everywhere. So let's close with one verse from Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen. You're dismissed.